You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. First, I'm going to shoot you in the stomach, and then I'm going to shatter both your shin bones with two more bullets. And when you're almost dead, I'm going to blow your brains out. Um, I'm just going to shoot you once in the forehead and then go home. A life in crime can be crazy. Consider yourself back on the payroll. But with the head of the mob coming back... Vic is getting out. Vic is getting out. Vic's getting out. Things are really gonna get insane. Vic's out of the funny farm. Yeah! Welcome home, Vic. Can you join us for a round of Thorazine? <laughs> it's funny. Send a thank you note to Jake Parker. And anyone who doesn't like it. I want you to be very nice to Ben, but if he gives you any trouble, shoot him. We'll just have to bite the bullet. Oh, no. But that's the way it's got to be, Ben. My way. Oh, no. Yeah, my way. Okay. United Artists Pictures presents... I thought you should know. Sleepy Joe. He got his brains blown in. In fact, he's dead. A story of power... It's mad dog time. Betrayal... You've been seeing Rita in the night and me in the day? Nobody two times me! Two times! And sex... I hope you don't crash! <laughs> you two times me two times! In other words, thank you all for coming. The whole shooting match... What are my philosophy of life, Vic? I hear he's quick in the trigger. I hear the neck is quicker than Mick, and that Mick isn't as quick as Nick. I hate Nick of a Mick. I don't have the people to kill me. Don't look at me, I just ran out of bullets. Ellen Barkin, Gabriel Byrne, Richard Dreyfus, Jeff Goldblum, Diane Lane, Larry Bishop, Gregory Hines, Kyle McLaughlin, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> ben, go home. Pack your bags and leave town. Nobody tells me what to do. Ow. Ben, hop home, pack your bags, and leave town. Is that you talking, Vic? Or is it the medication? Ow. Ben, roll home, pack your bags, and leave town. Welcome to the Protection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Brian Connolly. Hello. Show me.
Also joining us is Mr. Andres Jones. You want to know my philosophy of life? On this special episode, we are looking at the 1996 film from writer, director, actor Larry Bishop, Mad Dog Time. Released in the wake of Pulp Fiction, it's something of a metaphysical gangster film with one of the most astounding casts ever put together. The film stars Gabriel Burns as Brass Balls Ben London, the man who's been left in charge while his boss Vic, played by Richard Dreyfus, has been sent to the funny farm. Meanwhile, Mick played by Jeff Goldblum, has Vic's girl Grace, played by Diane Lane, on ice. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, and I don't really think that's an issue. Kind of needs to be spoiled. This is a request from Andres, one of the Projection Booth's lovely Patreon donors. So, Andres, when was the first time you saw Mad Dog Time, and what did you think? I told the story about how I discovered this film when we covered it as the first film on our podcast, The World is Wrong, it's a fairly common story of stumbling across a film and loving it and then never being able to find anyone to talk about it with. And I actually, I discovered it under the title Trigger Happy, and that was in the late 90s. So cut to a few years, just a few years ago, and I'm starting to get into movie podcasts. And The Projection Booth was one of my favorites. You've talked with several people I've worked with over the years, and I was always kind of expecting you to get to Mad Dog Time. As I added one film podcast after another to my diet, I experienced something else that you that may be common for listeners of film podcasts, is that I kind of went from hoping you'd cover it to dreading that you'd have the conversation without me. So <laughs> eventually, I knew I needed to start a podcast just to make sure that I could be in the conversation about this and make a couple of points that I think are really important about it. And they are these. One, that every one of the movie stars, the actors in this film, gets the opportunity to do something great that we've never seen them do before. And just on that alone, like I, I often talk about Gregory Hines' death scene, like that should be in his reel of the greatest things he's ever done. And I feel like that's true of so many actors in this. And just that alone with this cast means it should be a film that is in the conversation. So that, and then the other thing is that this is kind of personal for me is that I just feel like this has to be on the short list of the greatest Jewish gangster films. I got to interview Larry Bishop and he, he didn't agree with that at all. Uh, he didn't see it in that way at all, but that even that confirmed my my hypothesis for me even more because I just feel like it's just a genuine expression, and we can discuss that. Uh, so that's my general experience with this fabulous film. So Brian, did you experience this film before Andres, or did he take you, strap you down to a chair, you know, like Marvin Nash and Reservoir Dogs, and just make you watch the film? I found it before I found Andras. I think I got it. There was a pawn shop in Olympia where we both lived where I was looking for Jerry Lewis movies because for some reason they always had an abundance of Jerry Lewis films on VHS. And so I went there and there was like a gold mine. I was getting, oh, the Geisha Boy cracking up. This is so exciting. And they had Trigger Happy. And I was like, should I get that movie? I heard it's the worst. I only knew it from the Roger Ebert review where he just ripped it to shreds. But that makes me want to watch it even more. Like, that really makes me interested in what this could be. And so I took it home. I think I watched it that day just because I was like, I've always wondered about that movie. Instantly loved it very much. And that was one of those movies where I had to strap a bunch of friends to chairs and be like, you need to watch 
this movie, or at least scenes from this movie. And I, there was a Christmas soon after where I made a tape and I put some of my favorite death scenes from this movie on that tape and gave it to people uh, for Christmas. Did you lose any friends over the film? Nobody agreed with me that it was good. Uh, I was definitely a man alone. And so it took me, I think, to be friends with Andras a few years later to meet someone else who likes this movie as much as me. If not, definitely more than me, even. As much as I love it, Andras loves it even more. Full transparency, I had heard of the film, but I had never seen it until Andres actually said, you're going to watch this film. I'm going to send you a DVD copy of this in the mail. Tell me as soon as you've watched it. I will admit the first time I watched this, I did not like it whatsoever. But then I spoke with Larry Bishop. You know, I'm doing my due diligence. I'm doing my research. I did my interview. And as soon as he started to talk about it, being more in that kind of uh, like more kind of like a Brechtian type of thing, very, very um, uh, waiting for a Godot kind of stuff. And I'm just like, okay, this isn't a gangster film. This is a distillation of a gangster film. And I think that it's very, un- well, it's lucky and it's unfortunate at the same time that this came out in the wake of a lot of Pulp Fiction clones and so this kind of just got lumped in with these, and it was one of these, like, this movie's too clever for its own britches. Get this the fuck out of here. And yeah, there's that infamous Roger Ebert review where he just tears it to shreds. And uh, and then when I watched it again, I was just like, okay, yeah, I, I think I get it now. I think I understand the appeal of this movie. I don't think I, I love it as much as you guys do, but I definitely can see the appeal. There are certain things like even rewatching it, even the second time through, there were things that I never picked up on until I was listening to your guys' podcast on it. And I was like, oh, Rita and Grace are sisters? Never dawned on me that they were sisters. And the way that they, just the way that the characters are introduced, because they keep talking, it's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of Othello, like the way that they keep talking about Othello all the time. And Othello takes a while before he gets on stage. It's very much like that with Vic. And then it's very much like that with Grace as well. And when they talk about Grace at the beginning of the film and like, Hey, Vic's coming back. He's coming out down from the funny farm again, blah, 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 Grace. And we're, you know, Hey, Jeff Goldblum, you're sitting on Grace and she's kind of your grace in the hole. I love the wordplay in this film. And then they cut to Ellen Bark, and I'm just like, oh, okay, it's Grace. And it took me, even the second time, I'm just like, wait, that's not Grace? <sighs> so I felt so stupid watching. This movie is smarter than I am, and I don't like to admit that sometimes. Larry Bishop is a smart guy. Like, he's like, he's like, oh, you know, you know, Sch- you know, Schopenhauer? Like, <laughs> how many times you talk to a screenwriter and they drop some Schopenhauer on you? I mean, this, yeah, he brought, he put a lot of philosophy into this. The cast has got to get you. Everyone, like when you're watching those gunfights and the different gunfighters who come in, like we could talk about how those gunfights are staged behind those de- those big wooden desks, which I just think is great. But to me, one of the first things about this movie when you first watch it, it's just sort of like, oh, here comes someone else and here's someone else and here's so- and he's in it and she's in it and and Paul Anka what the fuck like it's just it it never stops the film doesn't and then and then like oh and then Burt Reynolds is here too and then Richard Pryor and it just <laughs> they, they just keep turning over cards and 
just uh, like there's something about that that I don't know. I don't know many. I guess there are other movies that kind of do that. But the weird star power in this is, I think, what the the first hook that and also Jeff Goldblum and Gabriel Byrne, I think particularly the two of them playing the kind of characters that we really don't ever get to see them play with Gabriel Byrne. This was like, for me, his fish called Wanda with Kevin Klein, where you're like, holy shit, Gabriel Byrne can be really, really funny. Nobody ever lets him do that. He just brood, he's brooded through his whole career. And who knew that inside of him, there was just this clown. I always thought that Gabriel Byrne should have been way bigger than he was. You know, it's like when the usual suspects came out, like he was the name, you know, it was like, oh yeah, I've seen this guy plenty of times. And it's like, okay, I don't know who this Benicio del Toro guy is. Oh, there's another Baldwin brother. Who's this guy who's telling the story to the cops? I don't even know who this cat is. And it's just, for me, it was all Gabriel Byrne, Gabriel Byrne. And he was just like the guy. And then it's like, he still shows up in things, but whatever happened to Gabriel Byrne kind of thing. It's like, he should have been the star. Like now it's like, we talk about, even with this film, it's like, you talk about the the stars that are in it. And it's like, I forget that he's in it, even though he's so great in it, but it's just like, he's not that same level as like a Goldblum or Dreyfus or some of these other guys where you're just like, Oh yeah, they're in it. This is amazing. And it's almost like, and Gabriel Byrne. And I feel bad because he is terrific. And I just wish that he had climbed to more stellar heights because he's got the chops to do basically whatever he wants. What would you say? Like the high point for him is Miller's Crossing, probably? Probably, yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely not that um, possession film with uh, Patricia Arquette, you know. I, I mean, Stigmata. That, <laughs> yeah. Stigmata, thank you. <laughs> He's now in War of the Worlds. He does a lot of TV. War of the Worlds. He's like the, the Vikings or something like that. Was it the Vikings? I don't know which one. And then he did. He was in treatment. I guess he figured out, hey, that's that's the place to work. But even like in Hereditary, which was a big deal movie, he was sort of the last person people talked about. They talked about all the other people over, even though he's one of the main people in that movie. I forgot he was even in that until you said it, which... You know, shame on me kind of thing. But I mean, well, Tony Collette just kind of owned that movie. And then that creepy fucking little girl. Did you see Death of a Ladies Man that came out last year? No. Great film. Gabriel Byrne stars as, I think he's a college professor who's, who's having a, who has a, a brain tumor and it manifests as uh, his life turning into musical numbers uh, with, Leonard Cohen songs. So it's all based on Leonard Cohen music and it's pretty weird and great. I, I think it's, it's, it might be the closest thing to his performance in Mad Dog Time in terms of a sense of him being kind of play, getting to be playful inside of it. I love that this movie begins with this voiceover and this kind of like we're in space. And we're, <laughs> and this is the story of Vic and Vic's world. And we're traveling through the cosmos. Vic's world is very similar to our world, but it's an alternate dimension. So it's almost like you can say anything that it happens in this movie. Sorry, Roger Ebert, but everything that happens in this film is taking place in another dimension. So it can be as weird, as as crazy, as non-realistic as you possibly want to get, because this isn't the real world, baby. And I love that they have that caveat right there at the beginning to be like, 
that's it. Yeah, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want. We're in a world where we have gangsters that have shootouts behind desks. We're in a world where there's basically nightclubs. I mean, you do we see the sun at all in this movie? I don't think we do. There's no sun. And the only time they're outside are just like these buildings are just around everyone and they're in the shade. You know, like you don't really, and when they're driving it's all in the car and you never get really shots of the cars driving around. It's a very, you know, kind of cramped movie in a way. Listening to that interview that you did with Larry Bishop when he's talking about how they're shooting in an alley and there are all these rats and Ellen Barkin doesn't want to deal with these rats. I'm just like, that was a real alley. It just, it all feels very <laughs> sound stagey to me in a good way. It's kind of that one from the heart artificial world type of thing. At the very end, there's this point where Jeff Goldblum kicks a can. And I believe that he really kicks that can, but it looks like it's an effect. Like there's a string on it that pulls it up towards the camera. And maybe there is, but it's like, it's, and it, it's exactly, it gives it these, these real places, I guess, this weird sense. The whole film has this weird sense of artifice. Kyle McLaughlin's lair. I was watching it again last night and I just, I laugh every time I see this just, he has, this is just a big, like the, the, their use of rugs in this film is great because they use rugs and desks to turn just these big warehouse spaces into what seem like real places. And then his lair also has a little jet in it and this red sports car and they're eating sushi. It's just all this like weird thing. Like, let's make him as classy as we can possibly make him. And like in Kyle McLaughlin's lair, it's like all those couches are kind of in the middle of, I'm guessing, an airport plane hanger but then you can't really use it because they have to move the couches every time he wants to use his airplane and then in the basement of this you know, vix place which is it looks like a big hotel nightclub really they're not going to use that basement for anything other than two desks and a rug in the middle of this big you're going to need some storage for a building that size <laughs> i guess they put it elsewhere and just have their private little giant like, in any other movie those scenes would take place in little rooms but the fact that it's like in this big thing and that I feel adds a lot to that kind of Samuel Beckett feel, that Brechtian thing. It really makes it feel like theater and like adds to this absurdity and this that makes it more artistic than if it was just in a regular room. Just the fact that it's in this giant, huge basement. Well, the framing of those desks is really nice, too, the way that they're on either side of the, the screen when we see them and that we have these guys facing off. And it's basically it's like a showdown. It's like a, a, a Leone film, but that they're sitting behind these desks, which also kind of says like the character from Once Upon a Time in the West, who is really taking over the mythos of the West by building the railroad. And he does more damage with a a fountain pen than most people do with guns. And it's very much like, we're not going to pretend that we use fountain pens. We will use guns and we'll have these elaborate shootouts here, but always behind the desks, which I was just like, well, that's kind of a nice way of doing it. And there's just something about the difference of the hand movement of picking up a gun off of a desk, as opposed to pulling it out of your holster. Or There's just something that's really cool about that. It's, it also feels like poker scenes in movies, like the, because they're sitting down at desks, at desks, they're dressed, they're giving each other a lot of attitude, but it's all faces and hands and that those kind of Vegasy kind of, kind of movements. And that's the other thing, you know, you, you talked with Larry as well, Larry, my buddy Larry, with Larry Bishop as well, because he grew up inside of the rat pack. I just feel like that's what all of this steeps in. Like when he's talking about Vic's world, 
he's talking about like i feel like the film is talking about that era of like can you imagine being a kid and growing up with dean martin as like you're just fun guy who was at barbecues with you yeah your dad's pal going to pick up uh wiffle balls off of the roof with uh, henry, henry silva, silva. <laughs> <laughs> there's just something i feel like that's also part of the just the very organic feel of this movie that makes it anything but like a tarantino clone it might have rode in on that wave but it feels so organic to to particularly this one guy's very odd experience of that time like a child's eye view of the rat pack and that you kind of have that feeling throughout this whole film not like it's shane and you're seeing it through the child's eye view is he's now grown up and delivered this to us but that's one of the things that once he delivered larry delivered that piece of information it just opened up the whole film on this other level it's almost like this movie needs an introduction by Larry <laughs> to be like, Hey, just so you know what you're about to see. But yeah, I mean, what helps too is the, um, the soundtrack where it's like, you know, if you're not hearing Frank or Dino singing, you're hearing instrumental versions of it, or you're hearing Paul Anka doing, you know, my way, which essentially was Frank's song until Elvis took it over and then said vicious, right? That, music really helps cement that as well the idea of this taking place in a nightclub i mean i can imagine that a kid like larry must have spent a lot of time on the casino floor even though you're not allowed as a child but i'm sure you know whatever frank wants frank gets kind of thing or joey who knows how much power joey bishop had in the uh the rat pack but yeah it is it is fascinating that way and the more i think about it the more you know we, we have talked about brecht and beckett and the more you know I, I mentioned um othello i keep thinking more of shakespeare stuff and i'm thinking of like you know this is almost like because you know hamlet loses his mind basically or he pretends to lose his mind and this is almost like Hamlet coming back from the loony bin, you know, and it's just like, okay, well, what, what state is Denmark in now that I'm back, you know, and what, what kind of foolishness has my uncle gotten up to my uncle brass balls, Ben, sorry. Oh, what a set of balls had I. Those type of lines, I was just like, yeah, this kind of reminds you know, and you've got all of the subterfuge and you've got the way that Kyle McLaughlin is trying to manipulate the situation. And he's basically, he basically is a Shakespeare villain, especially the way that he's just like, okay, well, this guy's going to take out this guy and this guy's going to take out this guy and then I'm going to be in power and that's it. And then you have like this other players that come in and they're just there to help this, the machinations of, power brokering that are, are going on and then you know kind of like a, a a good shakespeare villain and a good shakespeare spear play you get so many deaths i mean by the end of this film there are only four people that are still alive everyone dies in this film <laughs> like a shakespeare play you're right are you a fan of christopher jones because when i talked with larry bishop he was it's funny he was the actor he couldn't stop talking about like when i was of all the people in this movie all he was like Oh, you know, Christopher Jones and everyone I told, and I got this person to be in the movie because I was told him Christopher Jones was going to be in it. And now the film is actually kind of a, a reunion of Wild in the Streets because it's got Larry Bishop and Richard Pryor and Christopher Jones. That was my way. And people will hear this later. That was my way of getting in 
with Larry. Like you, you find that subject that you start the person off on. And I usually am like, how'd you get into the business? But with him, he was born into it. But I'm just like, I love Wild in the Street. So I was just like, hey, tell me about your experience shooting that movie. And I think to be fair to people, I think he almost spends more time speaking about Wild in the Streets than Mad Dog time. But I was eating it, eating it up oh. with a spoon. <laughs> I was just like, I love Wild in the Streets. So this is great. Tell me more stories about Shelley Winters, yeah. you know? <laughs> yes. So you were, so you are familiar with Christopher Jones. Yeah. And so having him show up in here as the, Fake the Nick phony and Falco, the phony Falco. Yes, the trick Nick. A trick Nick. <laughs> that was great to see him show up in this. And then when yeah, when Richard Pryor showed up on screen, I was like, really? You got Richard Pryor to be in this? That was great. And this is, you know, like he was in Lost Highway the next year. I think ninety seven was Lost Highway, but he looks so much better in this than he did in Lost Highway. His health must have just declined so quickly. And I know he's only on screen for like twenty seconds in Mad Dog Time, but still he seems lucid. He's he looks healthy, and it was just so great to see him. That part feels like there was a scene and they made it into a dream sequence type in a way. Like it feel like that whole part where you see Larry Bishop as the mortician and then Richard Pryor and the way it's all kind of like, or sorry, Joey Bishop and like the way it kind of is fading in and out and like the way it feels kind of dreamy feels like there was like a longer scene there and they kind of condensed it. I don't know for time or because he thought it was more interesting, but I, like I, I wish there was like deleted scenes. Cause I feel like that feels like a deleted scene that's put into a movie shortened. Yeah, unfortunately, this movie has gotten no respect. I'm surprised that it was even released on DVD because, you know, you finding it in a dollar bin, it feels like that. It feels like when I was working at Blockbuster, this would have shown up one (laughs) copy. And if it didn't rent within six months, they would have just thrown the 99 cent sticker on it and put it into the bin. Yeah, that's pretty much how I got it. it Except it was Hollywood video. It's exactly what it was. It's actually kind of become a little bit of a... I don't know, like our, and we've taken it on, like with the World is Wrong podcast. We really want people to, I mean, all the films we cover, we want to, we, we want to champion, but there's something that's really special about this one that just feels like we, our podcast will have succeeded if we can get this film into the conversation because it just, it deserves it. And Larry Bishop is such an interesting film figure. As an actor and all of the stuff he brings, it just feels like this is a way into a very particular and interesting view of film. And of course, your, your show has a lot more, uh, has a much bigger audience. So we're all, we've already, we've already achieved that <laughs> a little bit. Well, and thank you for putting it out on Vimeo so people can not have to try to find a VHS copy someplace or like one of the elusive DVDs. Although actually, we did upload it to Vimeo so that when we released this, but since then it has become available on Tubi, so people can watch it legally with commercials. And and Hoopla, I watched it on Hoopla today, so you can use your library card to watch Mad Dog Time, commercial free. Kids, start doing your book reports on Mad Dog Time. <laughs> 
I was completely honest. I didn't like this movie the first time I watched it, but watching it the second time, I was just like, there's so much more to this that you could write book reports on this. There should be a lot more scholarship done on this because it is so dense. And, and not only are there rhymes in terms of there being a Vic, a Nick, and a Mick through this, but there's also rhyming themes that come through it. There's rhyming ideas that come through it. There's, you know, there's, there's even just the refrain of like, what is mad dog time? And what is, you know, they, they, you pointed out on your podcast, there's that great line of Gregory Hines where he talks about, you know, mad dog time and trigger happy all in, you know, one sentence. And then the idea of, uh, Grace is the one that triggers Vic's happiness. I mean, there's so, it, it's great that the, there's this level to the dialogue and you could just pass it off and be like, ah, whatever. It's too full of itself. But I really find that there's a lot of intelligence behind this thing and that you can just brush it off. No problem. Just be like, Oh, whatever. Fuck this movie. But I think really you got to give it some time and sit with it and think about it because there is more to it. I won't say that this movie will possibly change your life, but there's definitely something to it. It shouldn't just be thrown into the bin and then people say, Oh, that's just another Tarantino clone. Speaking of Tarantino clones. Uh, I, I believe Brian was thinking about this. Didn't you come up with some kind of a, a list of your favorite Tarantino clones? So I'm a big fan of the Tarantino clones and no one else is. And there was a time where I tried to start a thread on Facebook a while ago being like, let's name all those post Pulp Fiction movies. And no, everyone was like, why? Why would we ever want to revisit any of those movies ever? And that's like a, it was like just a weird genre that just kind of dropped on our laps in the nineties. And then there's still little remnants of it. Like, you know, but I, I just feel like in this movie, I, it makes sense why it's grouped into it. And I feel like it's existence is probably because of Pulp Fiction. I don't think this movie could have gotten the money if you if a, if a Tarantino world hadn't existed before this. And you have all your like actors from yesteryear mixed with new actors, like people looking a little funny. So it definitely works in that in that world of a Pulp Fiction, and it has the aggressive writing like a Tarantino. But this is so much better than like a Two Days in the Valley. <laughs> But but I'm also a big fan of like things to do in Denver when you're dead, which is another weird take on the Tarantino genre. Or um, Eight Heads and Old Duffel Bag is good too. I mean, what? Yeah, you know, like I feel like the, all of these movies maybe need to be watched again just because it was an interesting thing that happened where everybody wanted to write their clever philosophizing shoot someone in the face comedy. <laughs> There were a lot of good things that came out of it. I actually, I think I remember liking Two Days in the Valley. I think mostly because it introduced me to Charlize Theron, if memory serves. There were some good, there was some bad. I mean, you could probably even say like things like Lost Highway might not have gotten greenlit without this. I mean, because it was, that was three years after. I mean, we rode this Pulp Fiction wave for a long time afterwards. And anytime there were gangsters or thoroughly written dialogue <laughs> sometimes some more clever than others there are some filmmakers for better or for worse that are still working today because of pulp fiction i mean you look at i mean i love doug lyman but people were just like oh we'll go it was a tarantino clone or 
I don't like Brian Singer, but people were like, oh, yeah, Usual Suspects was a Tarantino clone. And there was some good, there was some bad. I mean, I, I don't remember liking Truth or Consequences New Mexico, but, you know, I did like Love in a 45. So there were a, a bunch of these movies out there. I remember, to your point, Brian, there was a an article written, I think, at Vanity Fair, where they're trying to group all of these things, and they were calling them Scuzz Cinema. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know if that necessarily works or not. And they gave a pretty good list of some of these post-Pulp Fiction films, and some of them were great, and others I'm just like, oh, man, if I never have to think about that film again, like Destiny turns on the radio – I'll be okay with that. Thanks. Does Nurse Betty yeah, I count? Think that's totally. I mean, if you really look at it, you could even count like Bottle Rocket or Hard Eight. Like you can even say Paul Thomas Anderson started in that post Pulp Fiction Tarantino-y sort of world in a way of like like Hitman and like people like you, know, you have Samuel Jackson movie or it's like about a heist gone wrong or everyone's talking about pop culture in a little bit of a way or talking about what they're eating and it's just like this whole I mean it, it does it I think it the 90s was just into that like Seinfeld is also the same way but without the murder where it's just people talking about what they're eating and pop culture so like there's just something going on I don't know if it was just all of culture kind of died in the 90s and exploded is almost what it feels like and all the pieces kind of fell fell down Wow, Larry, David, and Quentin Tarantino. I hadn't really put those together, but that's kind of perfect. It's very this much the same kind of writing. It's like Tarantino movies in a way you can say are movies about nothing, sort of. Like he has more plot, but it's you know people talking about bullshit, like not really talking about exposition, but talking about just what they did or what they ate or what they're watching. That's very much a '90s thing. I mean, think about all the conversations they have at monks in Seinfeld. Why don't they have salsa on the table? What do you need salsa for? Salsa is now the number one condiment in America. Do you know why? Because people like to say salsa. <laughs> Excuse me, do you have any salsa? We need more salsa. Where is the salsa? No salsa. You know, it must be impossible for a Spanish person to order salsa and not get salsa. <laughs> I wanted salsa, not salsa. <laughs> Don't you know the difference between salsa and salsa? You have the salsa after the salsa. <laughs> This should be the show. This is the show. What? Yes. Just talk. Yeah, right. I'm really serious. I think that's a good idea. Just talking? Well, what's the show about? It's about nothing. No, that's right. And, and, and like you, yeah, you have Kramer wearing Hawaiian shirts, and, and everyone in Pulp Fiction wearing Hawaiian shirts. It just feels very much like Steinfeld's obsessed with comics and Superman, and that's very much like Clarence and True Romance. I feel like there's definitely like a thing going on. There's a conversation between Larry David and Tarantino in a way. This movie, uh, Mad Dog Time, fits into that world very much. It's uh, but it's but it's definitely shouldn't be thrown in the Tarantino ripoff bargain bin like you said i think it did there's something more interesting going on here part of it's just the, it lives in the performances like i think just the performances in this are so special but also i feel like there is something that's pretentious in the best way as we were talking about with this film i think when the tarantino ripoff thing doesn't work is when there's a like trying to be cool thing going on and i don't feel like this is trying to be cool it feels like it's going out of its way to be kind of goofy and it just happens to end be, I mean, it actually is very cool, but that goofiness and that 
I don't know, the pretension of like, great, the place is called Grace's DNA and there's a, because she has a baby and the, you know, just the, just the philosophy, the philosophizing and everyone has their own philosophy and that this film is such a philosophical film. Like that kind of stuff just feels like it puts it just slightly, well, in a slightly alternate universe, like, like Vix World. It puts it into Vix World. Everybody should love Jeff Goldblum for whatever reason you love Jeff Goldblum, be it Ian Malcolm or his role in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He brings something to the party and he brings so much to the party in this film. And he's just endlessly fascinating to watch. And I love that he's not doing the typical Jeff Goldblum in this. He's not doing that, you know, stuttering, stammering thing that, you know, the like Taika Waititi was just like, okay, yeah, just do Jeff Goldblum impersonation for this role. And God love him. I love him in for Ragnarok, but in this, he brings something so different and he brings Jeff Goldblum. Cool. He brings that, the long fingers tickling the ivories doing a jazz standard type of Jeff Goldblum performance to this. And I just love him in this role. He is so cool and just so goddamn sexy too. I think it's got to be the least neurotic role he's ever played. Usually plays someone who's cool, but neurotic like in Jurassic Park or the fly. But here there is no anxiety. He is the most calm person in the whole movie in a way. And only, only at the very end does he seem to break when he makes uh, fun of Ellen Barkin, wh- like what she said. And he kind of turns into a little bit of Jeff Gold, like the Jeff Goldblum, you know, in that moment where he's all making fun of her and kind of excited about that moment. But before that, I mean, yeah, that part where he's massaging Ellen Barkin's like inner thigh, that's super hot. That's super sexy Goldblum. Uh, like I want Jeff Goldblum laying next to me doing that to me every night. Yes, please. I mean, we all know that Richard Dreyfus can go fucking ape shit, and here he is given a ticket. Hey, you can be Bob in this movie. You're not the doctor anymore. You're the guy from the loony bin, and you come back, and everything is wrong in your world. You don't know where your wife is or girlfriend. You don't, you know, you're, you've got this guy who's running stuff, Brass Balls Ben, who's just a fuck up. And he could lose his shit and just go crazy through this entire performance, which would be very fitting with the character, but he doesn't. He is just, he is the calm center of the world. Even when he has that incredible moment. I mean, God, that whole sequence of Paul Anka singing my way and Gabriel Byrne trying to take it over. I love Paul Anka and his reactions to Burns. His straight man acting. He's doing some classic straight man acting in that scene. So oh my good. God. The, the looks so of good. annoyance he keeps giving Gabriel Byrne when he's like, he just kind of, and he's shorter than Gabriel Byrne. So he's just like looking up in these like little like side eyed, like, what is this guy doing? He's ruining my song and he's, he's embarrassing himself. And that's the scene that when I show it to people that loses people for whatever reason, they get such secondhand embarrassment seeing gabriel Byrne like being goofy which is weird to people and then him interrupting that song i've had a few people be like i can't handle this this is too uncomfortable for me this is too embarrassing to watch and they they leave at that scene oh then they miss out on what's about to happen because it's so good so you you were getting at the I know that I know the moment you were getting us to with Vic's super cool response to what happens here with the him taking out with the uh, Iron Balls Ben London taking over his song? When he stands up and he's just like everybody out and everyone just 
rushes out of the place, not running, just very fast walking because they know that something bad is about to happen. Actually, the line is, he says, thank you all for coming. (laughs) And everyone knows that means it's time to leave. And they all do. Everybody out except for Brass Ball, Ben London on stage, Richard Dreyfus out there as, as Vic, and then Jeff Goldblum as Mick. And that whole thing of pack your bags, you know, walk home, pack your bags, and leave. And he gives them that an opportunity and he doesn't take it. And he shoots him in the leg. <laughs> Hop home. <laughs> yeah, roll home. He keeps giving them as many chances as he can. <laughs> it's like money. It's like the Monty Python bit. It's like with the it is. soldier. Yeah. Now stand aside, worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. You liar. Come on, you pansy. <laughs> Ben does not know when to shut the fuck up and does <laughs> that, it to himself. Goes on forever. Like it just goes on. It's one of those things where it's like the joke, like it goes on too long and you're like, okay, well, this is bad. And then it goes, goes on even longer. And then you're like, oh, this is interesting. And then it goes on even longer. And like, oh, this is genius. <laughs> I love this. They don't care. This guy is just going to milk this moment. And just, you got to, you got to be along for the ride. Dreyfus, like I said, he could flip out, but he's the calm center of the universe at that point. And he never loses a shit. Even when he's about to like uh, shoot himself right in the head, he's just like, mm-hmm. hmm, nope. Well, he's so doing Sinatra. That's the thing. They, so uh, Larry Bishop said that that, that character is supposed to be Sinatra. And I re well, I watched it this last rewatch. And his haircut, Dreyfus's haircut is such a Sinatra haircut. And then when you see him just sort of standing very cool and he's doing Sinatra, which is not what you expect from Dreyfus, which is kind of what I was getting into about like it being such a why it's so great as a Jewish gangster film, because you just very it's very rare when there's the Jewish gangster. Maybe it's like a Meyer Lansky kind of thing. It's all about the money. And you just never get to see the cool, sexy, gunfighter, boss characters being played by Jewish actors. It's always usually Italians or it's everyone. It could be a lot of different things. But these two guys playing these roles. And that's something I didn't even realize. I'm Jewish. It's something I didn't realize watching the film until really thinking about doing a podcast about it, that this was something that was unique and probably one of the things that spoke to me so much about it. Again, like seeing Jeff Gold, Jeff Goldblum usually plays a kind of a stereotypey kind of Jewish character. And in this, he's playing, I guess he's kind of playing Dean Martin. Uh, Dreyfus is kind of playing Sinatra. And I'm just so glad Larry Bishop made this movie and gave these two actors that to have in this pantheon of all this other great stuff they've done because i love all their other work but yeah dreyfus getting to play get both of them getting to play cool is just is as fun for me as getting to watch gabriel byrne play goofy give him some more to give this guy some dialogue to to chew he's so good with it as you said, Ellen Bark. I'm trying to think of the other of the other actors that really are standouts. But like this. everybody has a, Angie Everhart. Yeah, 
But everybody has their moment in this movie, which is great. It's not just a cameo just for the sake of cameo. Like every death scene that everybody has is a great death scene. It's not just, oh, you get shot and you fall down. Like from the very beginning, and like we said, we're going to spoil this movie because it's a movie full of everyone dying. Like the movie starts with Michael J. Pollard getting shot. That's how you start your movie, which is very interesting. And then you keep go- and then it keeps going and like uh, Henry Silva's uh, demise is brilliant and just his whole character of Sleepy Joe but then he has this crazy laugh you know before his final moments and like Burt Reynolds and like everybody and it's just it's such a great and even like the non-death scenes but like Rob Reiner's in the movie for like a minute but he's great. Just as, to give you his philosophy of life. Everyone has to give you their philosophy of life in this movie. Uh, and it doesn't feel like stunt casting. It really feels like these are Larry Bishop's longtime Hollywood friends and just people he respects, like like Billy Idol, I guess, <laughs> or people that he wants to put in this movie. And it's it's not. It, you can never predict who's going to show up in this movie. It's not like other movies where you're like, oh, I think I kind of know where these cam, like what these kind of cameras would be like, oh, it's all like horror directors or whatever. But this one, it really keeps coming out of left field. We're like, oh, wait, Billy Drago's in this movie? How weird. It's just, it's a, it's a, quite the cornucopia of, of character actors. And, and they all did it because he got Christopher Jones. That's the crazy thing. That was the reason. I love that opening where you were talking about Michael J. Pollard. You got him at the desk. You've got an unseen figure at the desk. You've got Gabriel Byrne on the other side. And then sleeping on the floor is Sleepy Joe, the Henry Silva character. He eventually gets up and starts to join in. And then after Pollard is dead, I think that's when we see who the third person at the desk is. And that's super cool Jeff Goldblum. That's Jeff Goldblum sitting right there. And it's like, what a way to not introduce your character until that moment. And I'd love to, I'm so glad, uh, Andras, that you asked the question because I meant to ask Larry about the picture that's in the room, which is that I think it's a, a bull, like, tearing apart something and that it's based upon the Picasso picture of the cat eating the bird. Because I, I, looking at the the picture, I was just like, well, that looks like Picasso, but I know that it's not. So I was just trying to figure out who did it so that it's not, you know, I, I thought that it was a uh, an existing piece of art. So I was glad that you kind of got to the bottom of that and that they actually made it for the film. It's a really troubling image for just a painting. That's like the first thing that we see after this wonderful sort of alternate universe opening and it really does set this very how long did it take when you were watching this before you realized it was a comedy it might have been some of the wordplay it might have been i might have started laughing just when i started to realize that there was a nick a mick and a vic but yeah i'm trying i it was probably something that gabriel Byrne said it's very the the tone it is very is constrained enough and they're cool enough in their delivery that it just feels like a stylized gangster film, and they're killing people, and so you're sort you're sort of scared for your heroes a little bit. You're scared, like you know, you kill someone in the first, you kill Michael J. Pollard in the beginning of the movie. You're wondering who's the next person this guy is going to kill. Like it's one of the things I was watching it last night. I was trying to remember what it was like watching it the first time and not knowing what's going on. You know, I remember there was a, I think it had to have been Gabriel Byrne that got me laughing. It had to have been the, at least that by the time of his death, 
that's just too funny. It might have been Billy Idol. Oh, you yeah. know, Brian, you brought up Billy Idol. That whole thing, and I think, what, his only dialogue is fuck, fuck you. you the entire fuck time? You. <laughs> it's so silly. And then that's the first time, I think, when you realize that this movie is a truly no-rules movie. Like, even though it starts with them saying it's another universe, you kind of settle in quickly. Of like, oh, this is a gangster movie. Maybe it's the 40s or the 50s. And then Billy Idol shows up with a very 90s look, like very 90s looking Billy Idol. And you're like, okay, wait. So I guess this isn't just like a gangster movie world. This is like a different, this is something else. And like Kel McLaughlin is not the normal sort of gangster villain. He's kind of nerdy. The way he looks in this movie, he looks like a, he would like a reject from the show Friends. He kind of has like a Friends look <laughs> the way spiky his hair is spiked in this 90s way. And it just, this movie just kind of, doesn't want to peg itself as just being like a an homage to gangster films. It's just it's gonna throw a Billy Idol at you or Gregory Hines or just like a bunch of like just very strange because it could have very easily been a movie of just like I want to make an homage to the Rat Pack. It's the fifties. It's Scorsese like. We're gonna have all my dad's old friends in there. The end. And that could have very easily been this movie. But the fact that once Billy Idol shows up and then Richard Dreyfuss, which is also very strange in a movie like this, you're like this is a no rules movie that does its own thing and am i correct in that the only actual tie to the real world in this movie other than the music is that everyone's eating a tic-tac and they refer to it as tic-tacs is that the only product placement in the whole movie and i think there's a scene later where you see uh ellen barkin kind of taking a tic-tac out of her purse and like everyone's just having tic-tacs i don't know if this because it rhymes with everyone's name and he thought that was funny to throw tic-tac in with a vic and a mick and a nick but that's weird. <laughs> it's white Tic Tacs, and they talk about it. He died of cirrhosis halitosis. And the, the Tic Tac is the fake medicine that yeah, Kyle McLaughlin is taking for, for, his, his, va- for vagina? his vagina. Angina. Right. And your vagina. Ben London just met. I love you. Like, let me go fuck with him. His, him messing with people is the best. I love that. Yeah. It's almost Rodney Dangerfield-esque, you know? Like when Rodney Dangerfield comes into the country club. <laughs> yes. Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. I guess because of Gabriel Byrne being tied to Miller's Crossing, in my mind, it does fit him being this gangster. But, God, yeah, it is, it is 180 degrees from that cool, collected gangster that he's playing in Miller's Crossing. Wild man. And, yeah, I wish they would just let him off the leash a lot more because he just impresses the hell out of me. Everybody in this movie impresses the hell out of me. Even times where I'm just like... Why is Burt Reynolds here again? I'm not really following why he's here, but I sure I'm glad to see him. It was such a nice thing. And I want to say that this was pre-Boogie Nights. So this was, uh, you know, before he had his big uh, resurgence. What does he do? He's doing some sort of like a sort of a Brando thing. Like he with his face. He's just he's doing he's doing some wonderful mugging in this. He is having a lot of fun. Getting to just with fake, yeah, teeth. fake teeth and this just sort of like I've seen Burt Reynolds in a lot of things. I've seen him be funny and goofy. I've never seen him do what he's doing in this movie. It's like I love Burt Reynolds. So another flavor of that should be seen by people. Yeah, it's just a it's a it's a crazy thing for me about the Like, I, I, I know I sound a little bit I've been carrying this on my back for two and a half decades 
So I, I don't want to. I, I feel like I'm selling to. I, I keep trying to sell it to you, but I, you're, you're, you're bought in. Yeah, you're, you're totally bought in on this film. Yeah, I think I am. I don't know if I will ever achieve the heights of of love that you have. You're a busy man. To. You have to. You give your attention to so many films. I don't think you can afford to fall in love with one. It does mean a lot, though, when you have that film to champion. You know, I've got my black shampoo. Other people have their movies. And it's just like, you know, you want more people to see this stuff. So, yeah, you're going to sing it from the rooftop. So I'm glad that you were just like, hey, I want to be on the show. I want to talk about this movie. Here's a copy of it. Come on, let's do this. And it's fun doing our World is Wrong podcast because like, we basically have to think of those kind of movies every other week or every month of like, what are the movies that everybody hates that we need to go on the rooftop? And, you know, like, so we've done like nothing but trouble. We've done these movies that everyone thinks is terrible and never gives a chance. And we've like, and I think that's why we started our show with Mad Dog Time because we kind of considered our mascot of like, here's the most. Not most hated, maybe, because a lot of people just don't even know about it, but the fact that it was hated by a very famous film critic and buried quickly, everybody wrote it off and forgot about it. So it's not even remembered as a really hated movie. It just was completely left in 1996. And so it's good to just kind of be hauling this on our back all the time <laughs> and be like, hey, and here's Mad Dog Time, and here's a movie that you need to give a chance, whether you like it or not. Just give it a chance. It just reminds me of like when I was a kid and I didn't want to eat food that I heard was bad or looked bad. And my mom's like, try it. You'll like it. You may like it. Just try it. And so that's what we ask for this movie is like, it might not be as loved as we love it, but you have to give it a chance. It, it deserves your attention at least once. And if you like one of these, again, if you just, if you like one of these actors, like, or all of these actors, but, uh, yeah, there's just, there's no one giving, uh, I mean, I guess maybe Michael J. If you're a really big Michael J. Pollard fan, you might be a little bit bummed. Yeah. Oh boy, he's in this movie, <laughs> but he's great. He he's great in his one scene. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, you're going to hear from writer, director, star himself, Larry Bishop, and after that, we will hear from production designer Dina Lipton, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. 
Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to culturecast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both Android and iOS. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I know you had been acting for just a few years when you were in Wild in the Streets. Can you tell me about your role in that and what your experience was like? The Wild in the Streets is, let's see, how would I even phrase this? The minute I got on the set of Wild in the Streets, I was home free. I was, I was, I think it was released when I was 19, but I think I did it when I was just 18, going to be 19. I knew the minute I got, I didn't want to do television. I didn't want to do anything. The minute I got on that movie set, that was it. So it was like really, really an amazing thing because I wound up with like a a, a six picture deal, but I think it turned into eight pictures, but, uh, but I was signed to a six picture deal with American International and they were doing the second one I did was a motorcycle movie called the Savage Seven. So when I did, but when I got on, I'll never forget it. When I, the minute I got on uh, the set of Wild in the Streets, because I think I'm just trying to think, it, I, there was that scene where we had like 300 the Senate, and I never saw. In other words, you know, I'm a young kid, so I never saw that many good-looking women all in one place. Okay, so and that, and it was just like this film. It was a very unusual film. Uh, I mean, as time goes on, when did you first see it? Oh, gosh, it had to have been at least 20, 25 years ago. I think maybe when it first hit DVD or oh, yeah. might have even been on VHS. I know it was kind of tough to find for a while. 
but and did it um did it resonate with you immediately or oh yeah uh, it's almost like a dystopian kind of thing plus you've got the teenage rebellion and all that i it, it reminded me a lot of uh peter watkins uh privilege uh which i think uh-huh. came out yeah, right yeah, around yeah. the same yeah. year yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah so and christopher jones starred in the movie and he was absolutely fantastic and he became a very good friend of mine you know i put him in mad dog time but he did me a favor by by being part of it because he had really stopped acting after ryan's daughter so i i I developed a relationship with him slowly because I didn't want to press him for it, but I knew that I was going to wind up uh, directing, writing and directing and producing and starring in my own films. So I was letting him know that. And then with Christopher, I handled him very, very carefully. And over a period of like a, a year or two, he started to ask me about, so when are you doing that? You know, when, when are you doing that movie? Uh, Mad Dog Time. So, and that's how that came about, you know. But I, I was really impressed with him in Wild in the Streets. He he was fantastic. And Diana Varsity, for me, she like steals the movie. She's like so perfect in that movie. But Christopher was like really, really not. He was about, I think he was around seven years older than I was when I did Wild in the Streets. And he was like really, really supportive of me. He He was really, really, and I never forgot it too. Because, you know, it's, you never know which way uh, uh, on a set, which way a relationship is going to go. There's a lot of egos on the set, you know, this, this, that. But he was really, really supportive. I had an improvisational comedy group called The Session at, the, at that time with Rob Reiner and Richard Dreyfus, And we were playing at a club called The Troubadour in Los Angeles. And he came, and Christopher came to see me, and he sent his managers to come to see the, and he just was very, very complimentary about everything. He was like really, really a good guy. I think I handled, I never asked him anything about his personal life. I think he liked the idea that I never invaded his privacy. I was just always glad to see him. And so that's, that's how that happened. I'm very curious what it was like as far as being on set, especially you have all of these young people. It it must have gotten a little wild at times. Yeah, no, it was like a dream come true. You know, it really was. And it was in the the heart of, from like 67, 68. It started around 1966, 67, 68, 69. Sunset Boulevard was like just wall-to-wall women in miniskirts, you know, so... It was like there is footage of where they in Wild and Series where they show how crazy things are going to get. But it was just an average night in on the Sunset Strip. The footage that they used it wasn't. It was just thousands of people on the Sunset of kids, you know. So it was like it was like really really interesting, you know. It was a good time and. But like I said, I had an improvisational comedy group. But the minute I started making movies, I knew that was it. That's all I was going to do, was be in movies and then eventually make my own movies. But Wild in the Streets really, really set the tone for it because I got a good, you know, I watched Christopher Jones quite a bit while he was doing his scenes. And I learned quite a bit from him. He had a really, really a good thing going on. You know, he had a really a good thing going on. So I was able to absorb how he was doing things and it came into play for me when I did when I did the next one which was the Savage 7 the you know you know when you're starting out in movies you're kind of testing 
the boundaries of how far you should go. Like, for instance, okay, Marlon Brando to me was always the greatest actor ever, okay? And he had a huge emotional range and he had a huge character range, okay? I wasn't like that. I was more like, like when I had girlfriends like at 16 and so forth and so on, they, and, and I'd take them to movies, they always felt like I was closest in terms of emotional and character. I was closest to Steve McQueen. So I always took note of that because a girlfriend can tell you a lot. Okay. <laughs> so, and also you don't want to get caught on screen overextending yourself emotionally if you don't have, you know, if you don't have it. Uh, like, like Brando, um, used to say that if, if you show up on the set and you feel, you know, you could give a hundred percent, only give 70%. If you, if you feel like you got, you only got 70% showing up on the set, give 40%. And then he said, if you feel less than 40%, go home, you know, go home. So, but I was thought, you know, what he was teaching me was to take a little bit off of what you are, it don't, you know, hold back. Because it's always very, very, and, and, and Brando was an expert that until he always explodes in some movie, whatever movie it is, it, he explodes at some point. But you could see that he had a lot going on and he was, he, he was able to hold back until the right moment. So that, but that's a learning process for your own self because at the beginning you think you're great with everything okay so but as i went through the six or eight movies i did for aip i tried a lot of different things but the the ones that worked best for me uh by the time i get to a movie a biker movie called angel unchained i know what to do from that point on but it took about three or four movies before i knew exactly how i wanted to present myself on screen so that was it while in the streets i'm taking chances i i i you know, I'm just having fun. I mean, the part was fun. The AIP, it was like their biggest movie at the time. You know, their, their, um, all their movies were, we shot it in, in 24 days. And, um, that's where we shot every, all the AIP films that I did, we shot in 24 days. But this was a, this was the most costly movie they had ever done up until that point. But it was a big, big hit. The experience with Shelley Winters was, she knew what she was doing. Shelley, I mean, all the people really knew what they were doing. Hal Holbrook knew what they, you know. And then, of course, Richard Pryor, I think it was his first movie, first or second anyway, but, and we developed the friendship too. He, so there was a scene where Shelley Winters comes to hear Christopher Jones and the rest of the band uh, play. At an auditorium, okay, and so she wants she's going to see Christopher Jones at the bottom of the stairs um, outside of where we're going to walk down, and we all of us are walking down, okay. So before we walk down, Richard Pryor says to me, Dinah Varsi, Christopher Jones, uh, Kevin Coughlin, uh, all of us said, let's take off all of our clothes and walk down, okay. So we go, that's fantastic. Yeah, let's do that. We'll do that. And we'll really shock Shelley Winters, right? But to show you where we were all at, we were big talkers, but Richard Pryor is the only one who took off completely naked coming down. The, so he had a lot of guts, okay? And Shelley fainted, like totally fainted. When, I mean, she couldn't believe that somebody would be doing that, you know, but that that was Richard Pryor.
The other thing that 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 I remember really, really distinctly, because I was bonding with Christopher and I was bonding with Richard Pryor, was one day at lunch during the Senate sequence, this where there's like 300 extras, you know, in in the balconies and everything. Richard Pryor and I go out to lunch with Christopher Jones and his manager at a restaurant. So we're we're there for an hour. We're just waiting because we figure like nothing's going to happen until Christopher Jones gets back on set, right? So. But whenever he gets up to go, that's when we'll get up to go, right? So about an hour and a half into this, if you can believe this or not, an hour and a half into this, Christopher Jones' manager says to me and Richard Pryor, don't you, don't you think you boys should be getting back to the set? And we, Richard Pryor and I looked at each other like, what? Like, what, 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 why shouldn't Christopher? Christopher was done for that day. They didn't need him for the rest of the day. So we were about 45 minutes past when you were supposed to be back, right? So Richard Pryor and I, and Barry, in other words, here, here was the thing. Was, you know, they had to stop shooting until we came back. So we get in there, and the only lines that uh, that Richard Pryor and I have in the Senate or in the balcony is we both say, amend, amend. Amen. That's the only thing. But they they needed us to be there to say amend, 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 right? So we, so we take our place on the balcony and Barry Shear with a megaphone. Who Barry was a great guy, but you could see he could be. He was a little perturbed that we, we didn't do it on purpose. You know, we 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 never would have done it on purpose. It was just one of those things that Richard Pryor and I didn't know enough to. We just figured Christopher's not going back. Why? We probably don't have to go back. In a, in a megaphone, on a megaphone, Barry Shear goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, here are the two people that kept us waiting for an hour. Okay, here they are. So, and this is the only. And Richard Pryor says, "Amend, amend, amend." He, he just he follows Barry Shear's speech with um, with with the line from the thing. Dead silence. It was the only thing that I ever remember where I was the only one who laughed because it was a funny thing to say, you know, and it took some guts, you know, to say it. So, but um, dead silence. I never heard anything that Richard Pryor said to a, to a group of people that people just didn't laugh hysterically, right? Dead silence. So I knew we were in big trouble. We were like in really big trouble, but I'm only 18, 19. I figure like, what, how, how much trouble? Right, maybe I'll be in a little bit of trouble, but how much trouble could I possibly be? But as it turned out, no one said another word to me, and then they offered me a, a sick picture deal. So that was good. So In fact, how, how it happened was uh, Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson were the two owners of American International Pictures. And the first day that we were able to see dailies, which the day before, the stuff that we had shot the day before, Barry Shear invited me and the rest of the cast to see it. So when I came on the screen, I hear Sam, he had a bellowing type of voice. It was very, from like an old studio mogul. He went, who's that? And so, so Barry Shear says, that's Larry Bishop. He says, he's got great eyes. Put him on the contract. Just like that. So that was cool. So I knew I was I was I was going to be okay for actually the toughest years for any actor would be most people don't show up in 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 Hollywood until they're like mid twenties, okay? If if they're from another state or something like that, so they don't get going until they're mid twenties. But I I know at eighteen nineteen I've got six pictures at least 
that I can do. It's going to cover me for the next three or four years, you know. So I was like, when I said originally, uh, when we started talking that I was home free, I really was home free, you know, because I knew that I didn't have to worry about anything. That was great. It was a great experience for me. And I still get a kick out of it. You know, sometimes they'll show it on TCM. I, I, if I'm around, I'll, I'll take a peek at it because it was like really, really out there. I'm, I'm so, I'm always surprised it doesn't get more showings than it does on like, you know, I'm always surprised because it was out there. It was like really, really out there. So you acted for so many years and I know that you wrote many things, but how was it when your first screenplay actually got produced? Somewhere, let's say, I think it was 1986, I woke up one day and I, I said to my wife, I said, I'm not going to star in any other movies but the ones that I write. So she looked at me like, <laughs> she said, but you haven't written anything yet. So I said, watch, watch, okay? So I went to... um immediately started writing a thing called Sweating Bullets. And I was able to do it maybe in about 20 days. I, I, what had happened was it was an odd thing because, you know, sometimes as an actor, you'll be riding around in a car or something and you'll you'll think of like, if you're still just thinking of yourself as an actor, you'll think like, you know, it'd be good to do a scene like I do, like like this type of a scene, Okay. And then like a month later, you'll be driving along and you'll say, hey, you know, it'd be good if I had this scene. Well, what happened was over the years of doing that, I wound up with 25 to 30 scenes in my brain that were not connected. But what occurred to me why I said it to my wife was I knew that I it, there was a through line that I had to manufacture, but it was easy to do because I had the scenes already in my It was just a matter of transforming it into a structure. And that's what happened. So I, I wrote one scene a day for about 20 days, and I had myself a first screenplay. Fortunately, uh, a woman named Judy Copage, I, I went to college with her, I went to UCLA with her, and she was a literary agent. So when I finished that, I didn't really know what to do with it, except that I knew she was a literary agent, and I had known her since I was like uh, 18 years old. So I called her, so she got it. So anyway, we sent it out. This is like, really an amazing thing in my brain that it happened this way, but it just shows you how things can happen. The first meeting that I have is with somebody who's leaving a company, a big company. He was leaving a big company, but had read my script and said, come on over and talk before I leave. And what happened was he optioned it the, the next day. So that was the beginning of it all. It was, it was, it was, it was like one meeting I had in order to get everything rolling, which is like unheard of, really, when you think about it, because it just, it just showed me that I can do this, okay? And I was, I wrote it for me to play the lead, and I, I wasn't looking to direct at that time, but, um, his name was David Breaker, and it was just like one of those amazing things that happened. And that was the beginning of it for me. So, so I wrote, uh, and then I wrote when I, once I, uh, that was option, and we were moving it around quite a bit. Uh, there was a huge amount of interest because what caught people's attention was the it, it, in in those days. Now it, it, uh, it it's not that way because uh, because of Quentin Quentin Tarantino started writing 
movies that were very violent and funny. But I was I did this in 1986, okay, and it was very violent and very funny. Why did Quentin and I both feel the same things when we started writing? Is because we were both really really interested and we were enamored of Sergio Leone. And that was the, the, the frame of reference, I think, in both of our brains, that you could get away with having a very funny movie that's very violent. No one had really done that before, the way Sergio Leone did it, you know. So I knew that I could do it with my sense of humor, which is different than Sergio Leone's sense of humor and different than Quentin Tarantino's sense of humor. But I knew that I could do it and that it worked. So that's what caught everybody's attention. So then I wrote a thing called Trigger Happy, which eventually became Mad Dog Time. And that was 1987. So I started writing that. And I took a little bit longer to do that one, not because I, I, I just felt like, well, wait a second. I'm, <laughs> I made good on my promise with my wife here is that I could, um, I, I could do this. And so I took a little bit more time for each of the sequences. And then David Breaker again, he optioned it you know, right away. And what happened? So that was in '87. We don't. I don't actually. Make, I, a lot of people wanted this script. So uh, you know, uh, that's that's what happened between '87 and '95. Uh, what happened in '95 though was I I gave the script to Richard Dreyfus. We went to college. I mean, we went to UC, uh, we went to Beverly Hills High School together. And we drove, when we graduated uh, high school, we we drove across the country together to New York. And we agreed, we were, we were going to make movies together. So that was it. You know, when I started writing these scripts, I said, remember that uh, when we were driving across country, you know, in, <laughs> in 1965, is we were going to make movies together. So here's here's one that we can make together. He read it and he gave it to his his producing partner, who is Judith James, and she did something that the others didn't do. The ones that had either optioned it or or uh, I, I just had a huge amount of people coming at me to do all these scripts, you know, that I was writing. So, but she said, if you let me have the script, we will be in pre-production in ninety days. So that was something that no one else had said because because by the time it's ninety four ninety five, um, I just want to get the movies made now. Okay, so that's what she said, and I said, okay, you got a deal, and that's how that that's how that one came about. She, we were in pre production in ninety days, so that and then we um, we made the movie very inexpensively. For about five million dollars, okay. If if we, if a studio had put together the movie with the cast that I had, Mad Dog Time, it would have cost them about thirty-five to forty million dollars, you know. But what happened was Richard Dreyfus said to me, he said, "Look, I'll do it for points. Forget about my salary. The salary is we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wind up making a you know a fifty million dollar movie here. I'll do it for points, and we'll keep the since he's producing it with his." With Judith James, we'll we'll be able to keep the cost of this down. But what happened was, when he said that he would do it for points, then everybody that I went to, Gabriel Byrne, Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Barkin, Diane Lane, they all said they do it for points. So I didn't. So that's how that movie got done for like you know a little bit more than five million dollars. Is everybody decided to do it for points 
instead of getting their usual salary. Drivers was going to be getting like $7 million. I saw him turn down movies when we were in the production offices. He was turning down movies where they were offering him $7 million just to make the movie for him, you know. And then Jeff Goldblum was hot. And they, were, they were all making millions of dollars, all of them, every single one of them. So that's why I was able to keep them, the, the budget down on, on Mad Dog Time. You talked about Christopher Jones. It's great to see him. It's great to see Richard Pryor again. It was just, it was great to have that. But then, so it's like a who's who of everybody. How did you manage to get Billy Idol of all people? Some of the people I knew and they immediately signed on to do it. You know, some I knew Richard Pryor. I knew Rob Reiner. My father signed up to do it. Although he was tough. He was tough to get. My father was the toughest one to get. Yeah. It is not. There was a thing that I wanted him to do along with Richard Pryor. I, I wanted the symbols of death, meaning Richard Pryor plays Jimmy the Gravedigger, Reaper, you know. And my father plays Mr. Gottlieb, who owns a mortuary. I wanted them to have be the two that are known as comedians, who aren't going to say anything funny in the movie. It's just... But it comes off, uh, you know, here's a, let me div- uh, um, say something that I don't think I've ever said this yet, but to anybody, but when I met Richard Dreyfus at Beverly Hills High School, we were both 15 years old. And when he sat down to me, it sat down next to me in an auditorium, I remember, and he introduced himself and he said something that was like, it was like really odd in retrospect that he said it, but it was perfect that he said it. And I never forgot that he said it. He said, do you know the opening line of Scaramouche, which is the uh, Raphael Sabatini novel? Oh, I don't even know. Who, I, I don't, I'm not even certain I even knew what, I mean, I may have heard the name Scaramouche, but I never heard of the opening line or whatever, the first line in the novel. So I said, no, I don't know. I never heard of it. He said, the opening line, the memory, it opened, the the novel opens up with this line. He was born with a gift of laughter and a sense that the world was mad. That was what he said to me. And it just lodged into my brain to a certain extent when I was thinking about what I might talk to you about. That jumped out at me because I don't know that I ever said that to, uh, to anybody before because it meant something to me and it comes into play regarding Mad Dog Time in the sense of it's a crazy universe that I created, but everybody to a certain degree <laughs> has a pretty good sense of humor and in, 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 in in, in all the characters have a pretty good sense of humor. So I felt like that would be an entry point for an audience to... Uh, it, 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 what happened was I, when I was growing up, I was very influenced by Samuel Beckett and Eugene Ionesco, which were theater of the absurd. But the line from the Sabatini novel is absurd in a certain way, or way it's an entry point for me to make an, a movie-going audience respond to it. There, the, there might be something there that they would be able to relate to if the world is crazy and you got a sense of humor looking at it, you know, which is the key thing. So it always stayed in my, it always stayed in my brain. The reason that Judith James responded so strongly to Mad Dog Time was that she was a um, 
theater producer, uh, a Broadway theater producer. And so she recognized it immediately. You know, she, she recognized the influences of the, of the Beckett and Ionesco and Theater of the Absurd immediately. But there aren't too many movies that you would say are, that fall into the category of theater of the absurd, you know. So, but in a way, uh, Mad Dog Time does, you know. Judith James was just right there for me. I mean, the thing that I learned more than anything when you, you know, acting is one thing, but when you, when you're starring in a movie and you're also directing it and you wrote it and you're one of the producers, I mean, it's important to have somebody who is just there for you, okay? And she was like really, really there for me. When I went and did, uh, uh, the motorcycle movie Hellride with Quentin Tarantino, so when I did that with him, he was like really there for me. Okay. So th for me, that's all I need. I got to have one person who's, you know, cause a lot of people, it's not an easy, um, it's, you have to navigate your way through a lot of different things. But if you have somebody who's just there for you, it's critical for me. I did it once where I didn't direct, that I wrote a script called Underworld, and then I starred in with Dennis Leary and Joe Mantagna, and Roger Christian directed it. And he was like really, really there for me. So I got lucky with that because I was just kind of crossing my fingers that, you know, what can happen here? But then. Uh, I met, uh, we got together, uh, Roger Christian and I got together so many times to talk about it. He wouldn't let anybody get near changing a word of the script or changing, I mean, in other words, I, 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 I'll never forget it because he, he said to me, um, I, I wrote, I wrote in the script that there were, were, um, Dennis Leary is riding around in a ruby red limousine, okay? Because I wanted something, I thought it should be, it's very surrealistic in a certain way. Roger did a great job, and Dennis and Joe are great, and Annabella Sciorra is great. And it, but um, he sent the limousine back to make sure that it was, no, he said, Larry wants a ruby red limousine, and that's the way it's written in the script, make it a ruby red limousine. Just, you know, in other words, that was pretty good. So I knew I was like in good hands, you know, and, um, he was, he was just very protective of the script. And he, and I'm, you know, every night that we were in, even before pre-production, we'd get together and talk for about three or four hours. And he was like really, really, I, I, I I'm very grateful that, uh, that Roger, was exactly who I thought he was going to be. So that was, you know, so, but, but getting back to my point is that you really need somebody who, of course, I'm looking out for myself, but when you, you, you need somebody who is, who's looking out for you also, somebody else. You, you just, you, you know, so it, it's just, you, you need that because there's going to be too many things coming at you. There's a lot of things coming at you, you know, you just need somebody who's on your side completely. You know, is willing to fight for you, which is how I've done it so far. I'm doing another one called the one uh, the one way ride. A, the, my producer that I, um, is also a um, Judith James is the one who recommended. His name is Kyle Bowie, and they've worked together. So you know, I know I got the same situation. 
with Kyle. So, but it's like really, really, it's just really, really critical to my being able to, to function as a director, as, as an actor and keeping in my brain that I'm everything that everybody's saying is something that I wrote. I just want to protect it, you know, but you need somebody like that. That's it. That would be my only advice really to, to anybody who's just starting out is you got to find you, you got to make sure that you got somebody who's like working with you in a way that there's all kinds of ways of testing that, but that, that would be too lengthy a, of a conversation. Maybe we'll do it one day, but, uh, it's, it's, um, but it's critical. It's critical. You, you need it. Thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure talking with you. All right, Mike, take care. Ask a little bit about you and, and kind of your history, how you got into being a designer and production designer. Way back, way, way back, when I was a youngster, I went to one of my first Broadway shows with my parents, my family. I saw the show Pippin with the original cast, and I was blown away by the set and couldn't understand exactly how they did all that. And I remember telling my mom at that point, that's what I want to do. And she goes, Oh, you want to be an actress? And I'm like, No, I want to do all of that, all of that stuff that's happening on the stage. And so that was that really sparked something in me way back then. So I got involved in theater and, uh, you know, all through high school. And then I ended up going to UC Santa Barbara in a completely different major and found myself in the theater department the entire time building and painting scenery. And so I went to Ended up going to North Carolina School of the Arts and got a degree in set design specifically. So from there, I moved to New York thinking I was going to be a big Broadway designer and ended up working in television commercials to make some money and then moved back to L.A., got into television and then feature films. And now I kind of do both features and and TV. So that, that's my my short story of that. You were involved with some of my favorite films from the early 90s, like uh, The Last Seduction and, well, Joyride was much later, but the, also The Public Eye, I remember really liking a lot as yes, well. The Public Eye. You saw The Public Eye. I love that you saw that movie. Such a beautiful movie. How about Very Bad Things? Did you see that movie? Oh, yeah. I even uh, talked with Leland Orser recently, and we were talking about that okay. movie. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. I've done some of those, you know, culty sort of movies. Small rats also included in that different kind of cult, but yeah. What was that like for you working on those early films? The business has changed so much since then. Back then, it was all uh, non-union. You know, getting your getting your feet wet in the business as a young art director and designer, and you could really do a lot with a small amount of money. Because at the time, you know, they, they did these sort of small mid-sized budgets. They don't do a lot of those now, those mid-sized budgets, like the public guy, for instance. 
and it was non-union. So you kind of got to do a lot of different things to figure out what you were really good at. It was actually great. It was hard. I'll tell you, it was hard, but it was great working at that time in the film industry, really. Did your job on Mr. Holland's Opus, did that help lead to Mad Dog Time? It actually directly did. Yeah, because Judy James, who was the producer on, she was one of the producers on Mr. Holland's Opus. And of course, Richard ended up being a producer on Mad Dog Time, originally titled Trigger Happy. So, you know, I met Richard and um, Judy James, and then they were going to do this small movie, interesting movie, and they had me meet Larry Bishop, and we hit it off, and, you know, the rest is history with that. But yeah, it directly, directly came from that. On Mr. Holland's opus, you know, he was very accessible as an actor, because it was one of these very sort of family-type movies like the whole crew and cast was like a big family and so everyone got to know everyone and so he knew who I was and maybe on a normal film he wouldn't he might not know who the art director of the film is it was a unique situation can you tell me a little bit of a difference between art direction and production design the production designer is the head of the department and the production designer is not only overseeing the design of the sets and the choosing of locations and the dressing of the sets, but also just the overall look of the film. So, you know, coordinating with the DP and the costume designer and props and anything visual going on the screen. And so that's why that, that title, you know, kind of encompasses that the entire production and the art director works directly under the production designer. And the art director is responsible for following through on everything having to do with the scenery. It's sort of the same job, but the, the, the difference is that the production designer is coordinating the entire look. Now, I don't want to blow smoke up your mind or anything, but the production design of Bad Dog Time is one of the reasons why that movie stands out so much for me, and especially what you're doing with Vic's club, what you're doing with that basement set, uh, what you're doing with Kyle McLaughlin's lair. I mean, especially the whole idea of the sports car and the airplane. I mean, can you tell me what that experience of putting all this stuff together was like for you? Yeah. I mean, it is definitely was a unique situation for me as a designer, because first of all, Larry was great to work with and, and Larry, had a vision for the film, but really didn't know how to get it out. You know what I mean? Like he had, he knew, like he felt emotionally what this film should be, but through our conversations and mostly about scale, size and scale and, and, you know, choosing locations that were unexpected, like the whole, you know, basement dueling thing with the fancy desks and the, you know, I had pitched this, the old print room at the Herald Examiner building downtown. I had been there before and I just had this, you know, he wanted a large space, but couldn't really verbalize exactly what that should be. And I had the minute he said large space and kind of spooky and, you know, what is it? We don't really know where we are. That specific location came to my mind. And, um, and then, you know, I pitched those fancy desks and everything about this, you know, originally we talked about it feeling like a 1940s style, but never really knowing what time period we were in. 
because clearly it wasn't 1940s, but it was like this weird stylized world. And we took great pains to make sure that we never really knew the time period and we'd always question it. You know, that the airplane (laughs) that you bring up for that, that airplane is probably the biggest piece of set dressing for no apparent reason of anything I've ever done. It's like, (laughs) oh, how about, uh, you know, an airplane hanger and we have just this airplane there. And going back to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, the fact that it was a non-union film, small film back then where things didn't cost as much as they cost now, but to be able to do a film like that on the budget that we had, which was not a large budget. Yeah. We got a lot of things promoed, you know, Larry had a lot of connections. (laughs) I would say, you know, very connected in this world. I mean, look at the cast. The cast is insane. So, you know, our discussions were all about scale and color is another issue. You can tell that throughout most of the film, it feels very warm and almost like, almost like there's a filter over it, like a, like a sepia filter over it. That's all very intentional also to feel like this. 1940s vibe like it's a little bit old like is this film a little bit old or without doing filters we just did it with color and lighting and all of that was that shot with the airplane in the car was that actually in a hangar yeah it was santa monica airport yeah it was in a hangar so the scene was small i mean that's the funny thing about all of these scenes the scene was small just like the scenes you know in the shootout with the deaths i mean Those scenes are small, but we really, really wanted that long walk, you know, from the door down the stairs. We put that staircase there. It wasn't even there. You know, we wanted that long, laborious walk to the death. (laughs) You know what I mean? To the, to the death. And so that was always in the back of our minds, you know, on these, on these sets. Like, oh, this is a tiny scene, but let's start to establish the scene in this gigantic space which is so crazy and fun i mean you never get to do that i've never done it since it was so much fun so much fun vic's place was that a location or was that a set that was a location and it was the old stock exchange building downtown the stock exchange was no longer there and so it was just this empty space. We built everything into it, basically. There was a, there were two levels there, but we built the bars and all of that. I think we laid the floor too, if I remember right. We built a lot of doors. So, you know, this type of film really requires more location work and then building into the locations in order to be able to do it for the budget. Um, we really didn't build any sets other than Grace's office, which was actually built into a location, but pretty much we only used one existing wall as part of the set. Was there a lot of stuff shot outside or was it mostly interiors? We had the scene at the car that was outside, the driving scene, I think with Rob Reiner, I think they did do that outside. The alley, obviously that was outside. A lot was, most of the movie I think is inside, right? I mean, I think just that alley, which I love that ending scene cracks me up. So funny. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Wow. Um, anyway, uh, he's so great, isn't he? He's just so great. So yeah. So most of it, most of it was, was inside. Oh, we had that establishing shot at Vic's 
but yeah, most of it's inside. Working in your industry, especially when you were a little bit less experienced, did you ever get starstruck when you saw some of these people that you had only seen on television or on stage and here you are working with these people? Sometimes I I would think Richard Dreyfus was a big one for me because, you know, I loved Richard Dreyfus when I was young, much younger, like in high school. He, we also went to the same high school. The funny story about this whole group really is that Larry Bishop and Richard and Rob all went to the same high school and I went to the same high school. So I was sort of part of their club. Like once I got to meet all of them, they were like, Oh yeah, you know, we, we all went to the same high school and same with uh, Albert Brooks. And I did a movie with Albert Brooks and it's all after the fact, they don't know, like when they're hiring me, we, we talk about, you know, I got to know Richard on Mr. Holland's Opus, like I said, but he's one of the people who I always looked up to, you know, I just from my, all the movies he was in, in my childhood, you know, probably back then I would say yes, but now I'm kind of like, you know, I don't think there's anybody who, I mean, maybe Harrison Ford. Okay. If I met Harrison Ford, I probably wouldn't, would be a little speechless, but other than that, (laughs) I don't know. What were some of your biggest challenges when it came to doing Mad Dog Time? Was it the budget mostly? It was the budget and the fact that, you know, when you look at the requirements of the script prior to doing anything, it was like, whoa, we're going to make this movie for $8 million. You know, we've got two clubs right there, that alone in set dressing and everything's fancy, you know, the, the restaurant and the fashion show and the uh just everything and so that was daunting the budget was a little daunting but you know at that point in my career I would say I was game for anything I just felt like I'm gonna do it I can do it and hiring the right people I had a great set decorator uh, on the film who's now been nominated for two academy awards um I mean it was there was so much about it that was challenging (laughs) I just ne- I never felt like oh, it's, it was undoable. You know what I mean? I thought, we're going to do it. We're going to just make it happen. We're going to do it. I still like that, actually. <laughs> I imagine that a film like this doesn't have a long time to shoot either. No. I mean, I don't know for sure, but my memory is that it was a 30-day shoot. That's my memory. So I think it was, we'd have to verify that, but I think it was only a 30-day shoot. It was really fast. And that's the other thing. That's why we ended up building. So we did um, Grace's, club at the Wiltern Theater lobby. And the thing I remembered about the Wiltern Theater and why I had suggested it was that staircase. The staircase, which is very prominent in many shots, it's just great looking. And so I thought it's the right style. It's what we're looking for. And we just ended up basically renting the entire space for a period of time. And we built you know, the whole club within that, the stage and the, and the dance floor. There's actually a bar that you don't even ever really see in the movie. I don't think maybe you see a snippet of it. I don't know. And then because of our schedule, because it was such a tight schedule, we ended up building Grace's office in the section of that lobby that goes into the theater. You know, there's like a hallway sort of like where everybody feeds into the theater. And I thought, Oh, this is, this is a good space. (laughs) Let's build the set here. And they had those sort of deco, like, you know, uh, released on the, on the wall. And we used that one wall that's behind Jeff in that whole scene at, you know, in her office. 
uh, that sort of fancy, we never could have afforded to build that. So anything, anything that I could make the film look more expensive that already existed, I made sure I designed in like the staircase, you know, like, like that, that restaurant that we ended up using for the little fashion show thingy, that was a restaurant called Perino's. It no longer exists. I think it was on Wilshire Boulevard and it had closed at that time, but it had those little, those fancy booths in there. And I thought, okay, that, that's something we can work with, you know? And then we just added to anything I could find that had that fanciness that I could add to the film. I, I tried to get agree. Yeah. Building in free production value. Exactly. Exactly. Looking for that all the time, even in the alley choice, you know, we wanted to, to have that long alley, it was a very graphic shot. So we looked at a lot of alleys at night to make sure that we found the one that had that scale. Everything was about the scale, you know, even just that little bit at the end. We talked about how Mr. Holland's opus led to this one. Does this lead to something else? Or I'm, I'm very curious as far as like how you land gigs. Do people know you? by word of mouth and they go, Oh, I want the person that did this design. Or do you actually have to like go in and pitch yourself and be like, I did this and this and this and interview for jobs. How is that for you? Yes, definitely have to interview for jobs. At one point as an art director, I didn't have an agent. When I started production designing at the, the early years, I got an agent so that they knew more people than I knew. So they would have to pitch me and then you'd go in on the film sometimes they'd steal it they wouldn't hire you and steal your idea but that's happened one time i went for um an interview on a film and i did a, a, a big presentation and they just loved it so much and then they called me afterwards and they asked if they could have it and i'm like uh no uh, are you hiring me if you're not hiring me then i'm gonna say no you can't have it which was very weird but at this point, you know, I, I don't have an agent anymore because I do know a core group of people that I like to work with. And, and then word of mouth often leads to the next thing. It, it often does. Some, somebody called me one time just because they saw, well, more than one time, because they saw a film that I designed and said, Oh, I love this film so much. You know, would you be interested in reading this script? Which is always to me the most flattering thing. Yeah, like really? Oh, that's so cool that you you're you're finding me. You're finding me. You took the time to find me. That's cool. Well, you took the time to find me. So there you go. <laughs> what have been some of your favorite films or TV shows to work on over the years? Um, I loved working on The Muse with Albert Brooks because it was incredibly unique situation just to work with Albert. You know, just the fact that he is basically in every scene and directing every scene and wrote it is just mind boggling how a person, one person can, can do all of that. He was definitely an interesting person to work with though. <laughs> I don't know how much I should say about that, but um, in mostly all good ways, but you know, he, know, he wants what he wants um, and he knows what he wants and he's extremely funny. Like he's just funny. He would just film like, this is back when you still use film, you know, he would shoot like 10,000 feet of film a day because he just keep rolling and rolling and rolling and doing it again and doing it again. And, and it was very interesting, very interesting for me. 
Um, he, as far as production design, he was very easy to work with, really, for me, for the most part. He was mostly concerned about air conditioning. His famous line was, uh, uh, you know that scene in broadcast news? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, that was real. I was really sweating like that. You, you have to make sure that there's enough air conditioning. I'm like, it's not my job, but okay. I'm going to make sure that there's enough air conditioning, Albert. Uh, yeah, that and working with Peter Berg on Very Bad Things was also very interesting. I've worked with a lot of first-time directors, which is interesting. Kevin Smith, I mean, he did Clerks, but he didn't really have a budget so much for Clerks. So Mallrats was really his first real film. And then Peter Berg, that was really his first directing. I think he did some TV, maybe some episodic stuff. But it's interesting to work with first-time directors. I, I feel sort of like a, a mom, you know, like in a good way, you know, helping. I seem to remember you also worked on Chuck for a long time. Yeah, that was fun. That was really fun. That was People don't realize how much scenery is involved in a show like that. You know, when you're traveling the world and going into like places that don't exist that you're creating, we had so much scenery on that show. Uh, it was exhausting, but it was so much fun to design. And that show is great. That show is, still holds up, I think. Yeah, I'm hoping they do a feature of it. They're talking about it, but we'll see. Maybe. You did one that, and I'm not trying to to bust your hump because I actually Uh-oh. really like this movie. Uh-oh. The new guy. Oh, the new guy. Yeah, I thought you were going to say something else. Um, you think I was going to say Dickie Roberts or Bucky Larson? Yes, I did. I thought no, Dickie Roberts. I'm okay with. It's the Bucky Larson one. I thought you were going to bring up, but thanks for bringing it up anyway. I thought anyway. There's good scenery in the movie, though. There's good scenery. <laughs> Just turn the sound off. But uh, I love the new guy. I've seen that movie too many times and it's just, it's so goofy, but it just works so well. Yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time. I should, I should make my kids watch it. I'm going to make my kids watch that. They'll be like, we're 20 mom. We don't need to watch it. Well, I don't, I think I saw it right around when I was 20. I don't know how these kids are today. They might, they might be too above it. Yeah. I think they think it's funny. It, it is a good movie. That was a fun, that was a fun movie to work on. That one we shot all in Texas, so that was interesting. That was during the um, the Bush Gore fiasco. I was in Austin during that. That's what that movie calls back to me. Right there in Bush Country for that. Yep. Wow. Yep. yep. How did the pandemic affect you? Um. Well, it definitely affected the entire industry. Yeah, we were. Um, I was working on a pilot for ABC, and we were basically two days away from shooting the pilot on that March 13th when we were on the final scout and, and we were shut down and we thought we were, we thought we were leaving for two weeks. That's what they told us. And so we left everything. We literally just left everything on our desks and, and left. And then how many months later we ended up, they ended up doing the pilot again, but we had to go back and like get all the food out of the refrigerator. I mean, it was great. Yeah, it was nasty, but overall it shut us down. Yeah. It shut us down. It's now getting kind of crazy in the business. And so huge production, you know, surge right now. It's hard to even find crew. 
because of all the time lost. You know, they don't have content to put on TV or out in the theater. So it was it was rough, definitely rough. So you're working on something right now? I'm going to be working on a series. I did a pilot a couple of months ago that was picked up that I can't tell you what it is. Yeah, so I will be working on that at the end of August. It'll be fun. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work online? Well, I, I have a website that I'm not very good about keeping up on, but people can look at it. It's just DinaLipton.com. I'm, I'm not very, I'm not a very good uh, promoter of myself, but <laughs> you can IMDB me and see my credits. Well, Ms. Lipton, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Oh, good. I hope it was helpful. Um, it was fun. I never get to do this, so it's awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Say c'est bon. Lovers say that in France. When they thrill to romance. It means that it's so good. Ah, c'est bon. So I say it to you Like the French people do Because it's all so good Every word, every sigh, every kiss, dear All right, we are back and we are talking about Mad Dog Time And we really didn't talk about Larry's role in the film I love that he kind of shows up as this, you know, I described the film as being kind of metaphysical and his gangster gunman, almost a samurai character. I think you guys brought up that, uh, you know, Henry Silva was having a little bit of a renaissance around this time that he was in ghost dog way of the samurai and that like ghost dog type character. I mean, Larry's not quite at that level, but he definitely has like you said, a philosophy and him coming in and just being this, I, I don't think he ever takes off his sunglasses. He just kind of like is he dips them down a couple times for effect, but that's it. Yeah. He's a force of yeah. nature. And really it's weird that he chose to introduce himself like halfway through with confusion where it's like Christopher Jones gets this cool intro and you know, the way he shows up to kill uh, Gregory Hines and that, that could have been one character that could have just been Larry Bishop's character, but then in the middle, he's like, no, no, now, then I show up and you're confused because you thought I was this guy. So does he, he doesn't quite have the same intentionally cool intro that Christopher Jones does. But like, there's something funny and great about that being like, you're the director of this movie and we're going to just in the middle of the movie kind of throw you in. But you don't have to ooh moments more like, wait, what? Wait, that's the guy. It's that's really great. If I came into this movie cold, I would have probably thought, oh, maybe Christopher Jones got sick or he got mad and he just walked off the movie. And then Larry's just like, oh, fuck, I got to take over this role. <laughs> but I don't think that was the case. I think that was very intentional that there's the fake Nick character and the phony Nick. He really uh, now have you seen have you seen Hellride? I have not seen Hellride. Very, very different character. I, I don't want to go into it too much because I, 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 it, because it, it didn't strike. I mean, I, you know, I love this, clearly love this film so much. And that's, I'm just not as into the biker genre. So I think there's parts of it that just go over 
my head to, or under or under my belt or something. They go someplace um, in your body that you don't want to talk about. They go someplace that other than where I can receive it with as a film. Just the way I just I love the way he introdu- introduces himself in this and the depth of his voice and the way that he that again like that uh Jeff Goldblum gets to play off his uh, off of that humorless, you know, tough guy thing that he has going on. Um, and there's also a fun thing. So at one point in the car, it's him and Dreyfus and Rob Reiner in the car. In my interview with Larry Bishop, he said that in high school, he was in an acting troupe that was Richard Dreyfus, Rob Reiner, him and Albert Brooks. So there was a whole time I was, I was thinking he must have tried to get Albert Brooks in this movie. He had to have asked him who would have who would Albert Brooks have played in this. Going back to Hellride real quick, I think I was mixing that up with another movie called Hard Ride to Hell for whatever I guess because it sounds kind of similar. Um, and yeah. Miguel Ferrer was in that, and I had asked him about it, and he was just like, "No, I don't want to talk about that movie. It was a piece of shit." So I was just like, okay, and just wrote it off in my mind. So when the hell ride came up, I was just like, nope, that's that Miguel Ferrer movie. Forget about it. But obviously it's not. It's two movies with slightly different titles that um, are probably very different. So I will have to check out Hellride. Hellride definitely feels much more of a, this is a Tarantino thing. It feels very Kill Bill, like that era. It looks like it. It, fe- it has... The kind of guitar. So it's very in that world, which may be good or may be alienating. Very different from Mad Dog Time. When it comes to the Rob Reiner part, this might just be me because I've seen Spinal Tap about, I don't know, 300 times. It seemed to me like he was kind of channeling Bruno Kirby (laughs) from Spinal Tap, which is ironic because of Bruno Kirby talking about Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra. Are you reading Yes, I Can? Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, by Sammy Davis Jr.? Yeah. You know what the title of that book should be? Yes, I Can. If Frank Sinatra says it's okay. Because <laughs> Frank calls the shots for all those guys. Did you get to the part yet where uh, Sammy's coming out of the Copa? And it's about 3 o'clock in the morning and uh, he sees Frank. And Frank's walking down Broadway by himself. Fucking lines. Well, you know, they're not uh, yeah, they're not used yeah. to that world. Yeah, Frank Sinatra, it's a different it's, uh, world that they're in. You know, it's just people like this, you know. You know, they get all they want, so they don't really understand, you know, about a life like Frank's. I mean, when, you know, when you've, when you've loved and lost the way Frank has, then you, uh, you know what life's about. It was great to see Rob Briner. It's like I miss Rob Briner. It's like, oh, here he is. This is great. And he's so good. And just, yeah, he's what, 30 seconds maybe in this movie? But it's a good 30 seconds. <laughs> you want to know my philosophy? He just comes in to tell you his philosophy of life. And then move Everybody's on. Everybody's got their philosophy. Yeah, I was looking at the cast of Hell Ride and seeing Michael Madsen, David Carradine, Dennis Hopper. I was like, okay, yep, this definitely does look like a Tarantino film. And then Vinnie Jones, which is funny because some people are like, oh, Guy Ritchie is the British clone of Tarantino. But again, a couple really good movies and then a whole lot of not so good movies. <laughs> Which I guess kind of sums up Tarantino for me sometimes. 
Mad Dog Time starts out with the information that it takes place in a parallel world on the other side of the universe. That's not far enough away for me. Scene after scene simply consists of characters standing around and talking tough before somebody gets shot to death. How in the world did anyone think this would be watchable, let alone entertaining? This movie is a humorless, witless exercise in pointlessness and a complete waste of the time and talent of the big cast of big names. I was shocked oh, by this absolutely film. Absolutely true. In fact, I think we'll be referring to this film in January when we do that list. Uh, the worst list. Oh, absolutely yes, I think right. it That's will have a list. place of honor on that list. Um, I was kind of stunned, too. Um, Richard Dreyfuss I, is listed as one of the executives involved in this, a producer of some sort in this picture. What did he find in this material? I don't have a clue. Did he like walking through as some kind of mafia don uh, who's, you know, had uh, mental problems and just getting out? Did he like walking through in a bathrobe? Uh, what drew all these other talents? These are know. big talents. I these are know. quality There's actors. I have no people. idea. Maybe they all got hallucinating uh, after a screening of Usual Suspects and thought, this screenplay had some similarity to it. That's I what would I, have loved to have been at the pitch meeting. Okay. I would have loved to hear the I pitch. Put it, Somebody's yeah. going to spend millions yeah. of dollars on this picture. What do you tell them? Okay. How can you convince them there's anything in this movie that anybody I'm wants tell to you, see? I think you put your finger on it when you said usual suspects, and I'm going to cite Reservoir Dogs. I think this is a bunch of 40 to 50-year-old guys thinking, hey, here's the way the world's going with Tarantino, so we're going to make one, too. It'll work. Mm -hmm. This is what people want, and they have sold themselves out and... Leave us with a bum movie. We haven't talked about the things that are bad about this film, and I love this film, and I can acknowledge that there are things that are just not, they're like little things that are like not great, or like the the ending is, they don't really care about the ending of this movie. <laughs> like, yeah, those dissolves. <laughs> I think the dissolves on Dreyfus and Lane are supposed to mirror the dissolves that we got at the beginning of the film as they kind of go into Vic's world. But by that time in the film, you've kind of forgotten about it, and it just looks like it's a mistake. And you're like, why are they doing this? This is a weird fucking dissolve that they keep doing on him. To I guess it's just a different way of approaching films. Like, Maybe that's a way that some people enjoy films. I don't enjoy, like, I am a big believer in the, if a film, if, if I can meet a film halfway in the suspension of disbelief game, I will, because then I get the most out of it. Like, of course, there's like, you can, if it's very easy for me to forget those things, but I think that for some other people, if you're, if you're constitutionally different, then yeah, you're going to approach a film like this like Roger Ebert did and just see what's wrong with it. I still, I hope there's an afterlife and I hope that I end up wherever Roger Ebert is and we can have this conversation because I really want to take him to task. I do not understand how he could watch this movie and think that it was, it wasn't, what was it? It's not an, it's the only film he's ever watched that isn't, an improvement on a blank screen saying something about ukulele picks. I'm trying to remember what the exact quote was, but I was like, <laughs> what are you even talking about? And he has a, he's a quote in, the, in his review saying this movie is like waiting for a bus in a town that you don't realize that there is no bus. And I'm like, I don't even really understand what that means. <laughs> like, it's funny. It's a funny line, Roger, but I don't really get, it's just like, I, I, yeah, I just, there's just so many worse act, like the worst movie is a boring movie, a movie that means nothing and the people made it, it means nothing to them. That is a bad movie. But this movie clearly means something to Larry Bishop and it clearly is like, not like other movies. So like to take this one down and consider it one of the worst is very strange. 
especially in the mid nineties when there was a treasure trove of, of actual garbage. Like this is when there were some, there were bad movies that were made. This isn't one of them. Don't forget that uh, he also hated Blue Velvet. I mean, there was no David Lynch could do no right he gave by him. Raisin Arizona one star. Like that's one of the great and like and I love Roger Ebert and he is my favorite film critic because he's such a good writer. But I definitely like have I do not agree with his taste at all. Or he'll love a movie and he'll be like, really that that movie like Knowing gets four stars. Okay, Roger Ebert, that's that's very strange. Like I respect that, but what? What he really did kind of have his own, which I kind of respect. He wasn't someone trying to match what people in the times were into. wasn't trying to impress anybody. He really had his own taste level, which makes sense. Being a guy who wrote Russ Meyer movies, like he's working on his own taste level, his own like he doesn't what what is good or bad to him is like his own thing. So like, and I respect that. It's not like. I won't name anyone, but film critics now that where they just love everything or they hate everything because it's funny. Like he really, you could not predict Roger Ebert in a way. Like he just was kind of, it was, it, but it's always a well-written article. I looked up the review and the weird non sequitur was at the end. He says that Mad Dog Time should be cut into free ukulele picks for the poor. I guess he's referring to the film making film pieces why i, yeah, I, I don't even get that would you, why would someone who loves the actual the film, celluloid why for the poor? i don't yeah, know yeah but, <laughs> we all know how much the poor love playing ukuleles and unfortunately most of them can't afford picks they can afford the ukulele but not the pick and that's what's wrong with this country today <laughs> oh, yeah that's what's wrong the world is wrong with in that we don't have enough picks ukulele picks for the poor well guys i thank you so much for being my special guest on this episode so brian tell me what's keeping you busy these days i am now working for the austin film society which is very exciting they're reopening and so anyone in austin please come by say hi watch a movie and i've also been doing post-production on a feature length movie that i made last year called make popular movies and i'm getting it ready for film festivals and so look for that you know Sometime in early next year, probably. And Andres, how about yourself? Uh, well, I always have a bunch of different projects churning at any given time, but most of them probably wouldn't be of much interest to the listeners of this podcast. But one that I think might be is that uh, after we covered <clears throat> the low-budget assassination dark comedy, The November Men... Uh, not to be confused with the November Man starring Pierce Brosnan. Uh, we covered that on the podcast. And then after that, I got, I was befriended by the film's director, Paul Williams, not to be confused with the songwriter or the rock journalist or the architect. But Paul, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He had like, he had this amazing little run at the onset of New Hollywood. His company produced the first, uh, Terrence Malick and Brian De Palma films. And his own films featured actors like John Voight and Robert Duvall and John Lithgow and Barbara Hershey and David Preval and others. And he was also a political guy. And he spent a lot of time with Huey Newton and Abby Hoffman and Eldridge Cleaver. 
And so his memoir is just full of these amazing insights and anecdotes that as a film fan, I just are incredibly valuable. And so I'm helping him with that and trying to help him find a, a publisher for his book and also to try and get more people to find another gem from the 90s, this film called The November Men, which I don't think even got a DVD release. And so we're working on trying to get it a DVD release in some form or fashion. And you can hear about it on episode 34 of The World is Wrong podcast. I was so afraid that you liked The November Man, the Pierce Brosnan film. No. Because I just no. tried to watch that recently. I can't remember who I was interviewing that was involved with the production. I was just like... <sighs> Yeah, this isn't good. I like Pierce Brosnan films. I even like some of the bad Pierce Brosnan films, but I was just not getting into that one. There's one that. No, no, no. There's one he did with Woody Harrelson that I caught when I was on vacation and I saw it on like Mexican TV and I was just like, this is funny fucking shit. I love this movie. And I mean, Woody Harrelson again, it's like a, a bad Woody Harrelson movie is better than a good whoever movie a lot of times. Yeah, kind of the same thing for Pierce Brosnan. So those two together, I was like, yeah, this is great. But man, yeah, that November man. Oof. Yeah, it was released on Troma. It's the story of a director, very much like Paul Williams, a, a former 60s radical who decides to ass assassinate George Bush and pretend that he's just making a movie about assassinating George Bush. And in doing it, they go and actually film George Bush at like they sneak in Borat style and film George Bush with the secret service all around. So it really feels like they could really get busted. It just has this weird tone of it's, it's a comedy, but it also is, has incredible teeth to it. Really, it really, uh, a, a film that like, like Mad Dog Time, one that I found in a bin and then just haven't been able to let go of for, for years. So I hope you check it out. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Thank you very much. About a month and a half ago, I uh, received the biggest kick in my career. I wrote a song for a new singer. His name was Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friends I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I am certain I've lived A life that's full Traveled each And every highway But more much more than this I did it My way Regrets I've had a few But then again Too few to mention 
I did what I had to do And saw it through without exemption I planned each chartered course Each careful step along the byway But more, much more than this I did it my way Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew When I bit off more than I could chew But through it all If there was doubt I ate it up And spit it out I faced it all And I stood tall And did it my way I've loved, laughed and cried had my fill my share of losing and now as the tears subside I find it all so amusing to think I did all that and may I say not in a shy way Oh, no, no, not me, I did it my way. For what is a man, what has he got, if not himself, then he has not to say. to the end of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at The Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. <laughs>